Please join with me in today's scripture reading from Ephesians 6, verse 4. In our Pew Bibles, this is on page 979. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, one verse today, yes. It's a very practical one, actually. And next week, we'll finish up this section in Ephesians before we get into spiritual warfare and go into a Lenten series. Um, supposedly, Lenten season has already started, but we just wanted to finish off this section so that it doesn't seem uh, kind of kind of divided in such a weird way. So we're, we're going to finish off this kind of submission principle series and family work series, and then go into Lenten, and then we'll go into spiritual warfare after that. Last week, we, we looked at this clear break in Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, between chapters 3 and, and 4, and so let me read this clear break in the letter once again, just as a, a reminder to us about those who believe in chapters 1 through 3, and then those who, because they believe in chapters 1 through 3, then they are to live out chapters 4 through 6. So let me start with the end of chapter 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's the distinct conclusion of the first half of Paul's letter, which is essentially the benediction. And to start the second half of the letter, it then begins in, with this in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so these are the contextual verses for us as we enter into this section of submission at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. And so we've already looked at the relationship of marriage between husband and wife. We're looking at the relationship between parents and their children, and we'll finish that up this morning. And then we're going to look at the employment relationship next week. All of these relationships are the backbone of a civilized, of a stable society, of which without these key relationships, the society will be one of, of chaos and one of disorder. But these relationships aren't the end all of the society. What is? You look back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That our relationship with Christ as the church is the most profound mystery of all that is most significant in relationships. 
that you don't have to be married, you don't have to have children, you don't have to be employed to experience this profound, mysterious relationship with Christ as the church, to experience the love and the grace of Christ. And ultimately, the separation that is worked on by the evil one and the powers of darkness is for people to be separated from Christ, which is why Paul then goes into his next section of spiritual warfare. And it's often that it is the division, the hostility within our most intimate and common relationships that is addressed here in Ephesians 6, that of marriage, family, and our work. So we looked at marriage a few weeks ago. It's clearly under attack. That's to be expected to have our marriages under attack by the evil one and the powers of darkness to cause division there and chaos there and in the most intimate of relationships is a very key strategic plan to cause disorder in what God created, disorder, chaos in what God designed. And God knows best in how he created this, how he designed things to be, and it's to be expected that this would be under attack to bring about disorder, to bring about chaos. Another thing to look at is the family. We're looking at that this morning, and specifically the relationship between parents, guardians, and their, and their children. And so again, a very obvious, a very strategic area for the evil one and the powers of darkness to attack, to bring about division, to bring about hostility amongst the most intimate of relations created and designed by God. And again, that's why we will look at spiritual warfare in the weeks to come because he's kind of laying the foundation of these most intimate of relationships and that these are the things that are being attacked by the evil one and the powers of darkness. And so last week we looked primarily at the child's duties, responsibilities in the family and today we'll look at parents more closely and it's this verse, verse 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And you notice the instruction, do not provoke your children. That it's before, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The assumption is that there is already an existent parental authority in the Christian home and that this authority, with this authority, comes a restraint from us. That, that those with authority and power need to practice restraint. When there are duties to be exercised as a parental authority regarding things like discipline and instruction, that that restraint is to be there before that discipline, before that instruction. And so if you're thinking back 2,000 years ago, this is actually a very, very revolutionary thought. When Paul wrote this letter, this is, this is radical thinking, and we, we take this for granted today, but you put yourself in that culture and in that time, this is radicalism. This is revolutionary, because children had no rights, at least not in Roman society and not any known society that we can think of 2,000 years ago. I don't know of a civilization where children had rights. And so you see how powerful the gospel is to give power to those that don't have it. And the power of parents, namely fathers, was an absolute power in the Roman society. This is from 
the Encyclopedia Britannica, um, not the paper version, because I, I used to love you know, thumbing through those things. My grandfather had a set when I was a child, and my favorite letter was D, because I love dogs, and I'd look at all the pictures and all this kind of stuff. But this is from online, this is not from the book. And if you look under P for Patria Potestas, which is in Latin translated, power of a father. Patria potestas, in Roman family law, that according to Roman family law, that, that power that the male head of a family exercised over his children and his remote descendants in the male line, whatever their age, as well as over those brought into the family by adoption. This power meant originally not only that he had control over the persons of his children, amounting even to a right to inflict capital punishment, but that he alone had the rights in private law. Thus, acquisitions of a child became the property of the father. The father might allow a child as he might a slave, certain property to treat as his own, but in the eye of the law, it continued to belong to the father. Are you hearing this? So when Paul writes this, can you imagine what they're thinking? Like, what? My kid? Patria potestas ceased normally only with the death of the father, but the father might voluntarily free the child by emancipation and a daughter cease to be under the father's potestas if upon her marriage she came under her husband's manus, a corresponding power of husband over wife. And so you can imagine what they were thinking also when they were saying mutually submit to one another. What? I'm the man. I'm the father. What are you talking about? And so you see how revolutionary the Bible was to Roman society and really all society in addressing to women's rights, children's rights. And you look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is revolutionary. This is radical. Unheard of before the Bible addressed this to Jewish and Gentile society. And so we take this for granted today, and many claim the Bible to be antiquated or misogynistic or discriminatory, but the equality for women, the equality for children and employees were non-existent in society before the Bible brought these equalities to these people who had no rights before. And this radical thought was brought to believers of Christ, believers of chapters 1 through 3, believers of the gospel. This revolutionary thought is for those who were once in darkness and brought to the light, who experienced the grace of God, who will now bring this enlightenment and grace into their families, into their marriages, into their workplaces. And this will transform our most intimate relationships for the better for those in authority and power to do good and not harm those in submission to them. And in the context of the family, do not provoke your children to anger. A Roman father would think, I could do whatever I want. No, the Bible says otherwise. Don't provoke them. Don't embarrass them, exasperate, agitate, irritate, aggravate discourage them, causing them to be angry. Don't do that. 
And you notice that anger is the emotion that is mentioned because that's the one that can be recognized, right? Because how do you recognize embarrassment? You don't because it's, it's a feeling. And all those other words, whether irritated or agitated, aggravated, exasperated, those are all feeling words. And what it provokes is an anger, an emotion. So emotions are emoted. Feelings that happen to our children are within, and then oftentimes they are emoted in anger because that's one of those basic emotions that everyone kind of exercises. And so there are so many ways parents can provoke the feelings, and the way we see it manifest in emotions is when they get angry. So we are not to provoke. We are not to kind of make those things stir with them, not to cause those feelings within our children to manifest into anger. We are to be like our heavenly Father to our children, extending grace, extending goodness, patience, care, love. And this is part of the sanctification process of a parent. I shared with you last week, or I don't remember when, I probably shared it with you several times, that nothing has helped my personal sanctification as much as being a father. Nothing. Nothing even comes close. And that's absolute truth. Because what happens is my sin stares me in the face. Sins that have caused my children to get angry because I lack grace. I lack patience. I lack goodness, care, and love toward them. And even when I have the greatest of intent and the greatest of motivation to do good for them, to them, that true self within me that is clothed in sin is then exposed. Know how God loves us to be disciplined in such a way when we think we are so right. You know, in our power and in our authority, that we think we're so right, and then he just shows us otherwise. You're not. You're not. And this is not just as a parent. This is also as a husband. This is as a citizen. This is as a worker. This is in all aspects of my life where I think that I am so right, and then he just kind of shows me, you're not. How desperately we need the Spirit. How desperately we need God's Word. And how often we think that what is so right for our children is so rooted in what is sinful. There are too many examples for me to bring about and to list, but let me just throw out some really common ones that we struggle with. And one of them is selfishness. We're so selfish. It's so easy to look at what we want for our children rather than what God wants for his children. And to make them into our image, rather than making them into God's image. And so we elevate different things based off of our upbringing or what we value, and whether that be education or so-called success or whatever that may be, that we forget who those children actually belong to and it is in God's image that they are made. And so often our selfishness in terms of what we want out of them gets in the way. And often what we want drives us 
to be harsh with our children, to behave a certain way or to act a certain way or to have a certain performance within athletics or academics or whatever it may be that we overreact to situations because we want things a certain way and a lot of times we're just not in a good place ourselves so it comes out in a very negative way when they don't meet our expectations. So whether that's in how we discipline or, or respond to something that was said or done, it sometimes doesn't match what our response is to them. And that reaction is an overreaction that actually provokes. Now, speaking of discipline, parents need to discipline while practicing wisdom. It needs to be personalized and it needs to be consistent. Discipline for one child isn't necessarily discipline for all children. For example, if you have an extroverted child and you remove them from social things, then that's punishment for them, right? That is torture. But if you do that to an introverted child, you're actually rewarding them. That's great. There's no punishment in that. And the other thing is children need consistency. They need us to be predictable. We can't just be all over the place where one day this equals this punishment and then the next time it's something else. It needs to be predictable. It needs to be in line with what they did, which is partially why children kind of push the boundaries over and over again. Because they're trying to figure out where is that line? And so like when this happens, then this is what happens with my parents, and they're trying to figure this out. And so we're not to be more severe with them or impatient or frustrated because something is happening over and over again. They're trying to figure this out. And this, the same offense a day ago is not to be less severe or more severe in the discipline. We need to be consistent with them. And so children need us to be consistent. They need us to be sensible in our discipline. And the discipline just has to make sense to them. Right? That the discipline needs to fit the disobedience or, or the rebelling. They need to know where those boundaries are and they need to know they have an opportunity to explain themselves. Now this doesn't mean that they have a good reason for what they did. You can listen to it, but they need at least the opportunity to share knowing we're going to listen to them. They have an opportunity to share with us, to communicate with us what is on their mind. And, and they need that part. And we need to be able to hear from them where they're coming from. And we need to discern between when they knowingly disobey versus they unknowingly disobeyed. I mean, those are very two different things. And we need to discern between what they did purposefully and what was done accidentally. What is deliberate and what is unwitting. It is a huge difference. I remember as a child, I accidentally dropped a dish full of food during lunch at my grandfather's house. My maternal grandfather, he got super angry at me. He was just yelling at me and calling me different names. And I was just thinking how terrible of a kid I am. But the thing is, I, I didn't mean to do that. It wasn't like I grabbed the dish and I threw it down and it was a deliberate action. It was, it was an accident. And this is 
something that young kids do. I was probably seven or eight at the time. And this is just things that kids do. And he called me a lot of unkind things, and obviously it sticks through my mind as a seven and eight-year-old. I don't remember many things from that time, but I remember this. And it's different if I deliberately did it just to create a mess for someone to clean up, or, but it wasn't anything like that. I was not being rebellious. I was not being disobedient. That's not practicing wisdom and discipline. And it says, do not provoke your children to anger. In so many ways we provoke, and there's no way for this to be an exhaustive list, but one of the things that come to mind because a cousin of mine shared this with me about his parents, that when he did something really, really great, they didn't recognize that goodness, and they always kind of questioned it. And I don't know if you grew up in households like that. I, I sure did. And I've heard from a number of college students from Cal that they've experienced this in their high school years as well as college years, that when they received this A minus or they received a B plus, the parents didn't recognize how difficult the class was. And, and the only question they had was, how come you didn't get an A? that no matter how well they did at something, there's no recognition of that work or effort or, or, or what they did achieve, but only questioning that they could have done better. I don't know how many times that has provoked me to anger. Even to this day. I get the same thing from my, especially my mom. That is always just the, oh, how come you didn't get more? How come you didn't do more? I've also heard from a number of young people and family members about being compared to friends or, or, or other family members that why can't you get the same grades like your cousin or why, why can't you behave like so-and-so? Why don't you, you keep your room like your, your brother? Like, we as parents, we need to practice grace. We need to practice patience. Not all children are the same. And we don't have to nitpick every single thing about them to make them into our image. And so how much we need Jesus because we're not gracious or wise enough, are we? And so children sanctify us. They drive us to prayer. They drive us to tears. No one has done that more to me than my children. I've never had the same feelings or emotions like I've had for my children. It's, it's different with your children, even with your spouse, because your spouse is an adult and is more mature and has lived life to adulthood, and your children have not reached that maturity, and there's so much life left, and you're seeing how you can navigate all these things. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so, in other words, train, raise, educate, nurture them to be godly. And the closest synonymous phrase for to bring them up is to nourish up to maturity. Nourish up to maturity. Back in chapter 5, verse 29, it reads this, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, 
just as Christ does for the church. And that Greek word for nourishes in chapter 5, verse 29, is the same Greek word translated to bring in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Same word. And it's an important distinction between nourish and to bring up. Because if you simply look at bring up, it's easy to think just kind of this mechanical way of doing things. That you flip a switch and then they do this. Or that you do a certain thing and this is the outcome. And bringing up children, for anyone who's done it, is not a mechanical thing. Nourishing, on the other hand, it is. Because you have to dynamically change along with that living person. And so how one would nourish other living things, whether that's your garden or a pet, it's not mechanical. You adjust for the health, for the nourishment of that living thing. And so you must keep an eye on the situation of the living thing moment by moment. They're not mechanical. Things change among the living thing as well as the environment that they're in. But we also can't go overboard on the nourishing because you can harm them that way too. Too much fertilizer, too much sun, too much water. And in the case of our children, too much idolatry. Which happens. And I'm sure we've all seen it with many parents. The term helicopter parent probably is because of this. And the nourishment, it takes a while. It, it's not a quick thing. It takes time for us to nourish to maturity in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's, it's not just in childhood. It's as, as long as they're in your care, whether they're teenagers or young adults who are still dependent on your care for them, and we are to nourish up to maturity until they're mature in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so that discipline and instruction... How are they different? Discipline is, is meaning training. Nourish up to maturity in the training of the Lord. It's the same Greek word that is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it reads, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, what's the difference between discipline slash training and instruction? Well, discipline training is more about action, what is done. And so when we're looking at something like a marathon, you, you train for a marathon, it's about the actual running, the actual eating well, the actual sleeping well. And the instruction is more along the, the lines of teaching you how to run. And so what do you do? You review your film and you look at your gait or you look at your meal plan and you're making adjustments there or you're talking through your injuries and, you're, and it changes your training. So they're two distinct things, yes? And so when speaking about bringing up your children in discipline, it's about living out these scriptures that you know before them. That as we are being conformed into the image of Christ, that by our actions, they are learning from our example, from our actions. And they are being nourished to maturity in this way. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul wrote, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk 
in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's by our actions as parents that we discipline, we train by those actions, and we instruct, we teach other than the actions that we're instructing, like with words. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. These are people we are not to be like. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. We learn through nourishing up to maturity in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We train, discipline our children by our actions how to do this. We do Ephesians chapter 4 starting in verse 22 through 24 in front of them, which is this. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We discipline, we, we train them by living out Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 in front of them. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. One thing about all children, they're very good at sniffing out hypocrisy. They are excellent at this. You don't have to teach them. They know. They can point it out. And so as a parent, we have to be disciplined ourselves in training ourselves. That we look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And so is this true of you fathers? Now, it doesn't mean that you don't struggle, but you don't hide. Bring the hypocrisy to light. Talk through them with your children. Live through them with your children. Let them see you walk. Let them see you train. The thing is, is you think you're hiding it from them, but they know. They see the hypocrisy. They live with you. They see it. So train through it. Together, read the Bible together, learn from it, discipline and instruction. Discipline is more about how one conducts oneself through training. Instruction is more about learning through the reading, through the discussion. And it's important to teach our children through studying the Bible with them and for them to learn how to study the Bible for themselves. They have to believe the Bible for themselves. And we won't be able to do that for them. But we have the responsibility to instruct them about what the Bible teaches and, and how they can study that for themselves. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your child might not believe that. But that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to instruct them in this to train them in this. The belief is up to the Holy Spirit and them, but you are to train them, discipline them, instruct them in this. To do your part in living this out, discipline, and by instructing them, talking to them about it. 
believing it is between them and God. And as we've said over and over again, we can't control our children. We can't force them to love the Word of God. But you can train them by living it out in front of them. You can train them and you can instruct them by reading it with them and talking about it with them, that they learn it from you. We can instruct by providing an environment for them to speak to us freely about anything. They talk to us about anything. To bring their questions, to bring their concerns, to bring their thoughts to the table without us judging them or condemning them, provoking them to anger. So that we can talk about all that they want to talk about and we can instruct them biblically. And not just handing out Bible verses mechanically, but training them having them observe us and how we live in certain circumstances and how we deal with certain people and talking about the very real concerns of our culture today and about life. It's a parent's duty as a believer in Christ to bring children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's nothing more important for Christian parents to do. Nothing. It's more important than their health, their education, material success, social status, the most important piece of their life is that they have allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord, that they trust and believe that Jesus is their Savior. You know, the interesting thing is I've always thought this as a father to my children, and I've always actually, I've always actually said this, that the most important thing is their relationship with Jesus Christ. But as I told you, that sanctification like stares you in the face and the sin stares you in the face because I found that it was not necessarily true. And how did I find that out? Because how much more often did I talk about my kids' grades to them and get tutoring for them and all the resources I have for them to get around their studies versus their spiritual health? Like if I compared the two, I spent way more money on their academics. I spent a lot more time on their academics than I actually did in their spiritual growth and nourishment. If I just broke it down, if I was just completely honest. And the thing that actually slapped me in the face to help me recognize that I was wrong was my eldest daughter's medical diagnosis with severe depression. Why? Because her mental health is not good at all. She's under the care of a care team and is medicated and has a psychiatrist and a therapist and like all these different things that are happening to her. She's not healthy at all. And she used to be the straight A student from kindergarten all the way through middle school. And then when she entered into high school, she's not. She struggled a lot. And I had to think through, like, do I really care because the awesome thing is I just hear this kid pick up the guitar and she's trying to teach herself how to do worship music. And she is studying the Bible. And she so looks forward to things in regards to her faith in terms of reading the Bible and talking to friends about apologetics and all these sorts of things. And it slapped me in the face to say, you didn't really care about that as much, did you? And it really confronted me about that and it's really changed my 
outlook on the rest of my other three children in terms of really valuing that. It's the most important thing, it really is, and now I actually live it. It's actually right in the forefront of my mind in terms of I can now consciously put down spreadsheets in terms of like how much time, money, and effort do I spend on X versus their spiritual nourishment. And it's never been truer for me until dealing with her illness that God has really used this to help me prioritize the discipline, the instruction of learning about the Lord. See, our children need that discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's, it's the duty of parents to do that. And our church is here to help you, but it is secondary, a far second to what you do as parents. And it's fortunate that we have a children's ministry that really cares about the Bible and teaching it, but the duty is primarily with the parents, and we're here to support you. And we'll do all we can as a church to support you, and one of those things is happening today in, that we're talking about, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how you love us and don't let us get away with things. You chasten us because you love us. You discipline us because you love us. And so, Lord, may we do the same with those that you have put under our guardianship. But may we remember to do it with grace that we don't provoke them to anger. That we do it in such a way that we are imitating you as they are to imitate us. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy and your patience with us. I pray, Lord, that we can be stronger in our bonds with those that you've put in our care. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have communion elements, let's take that out now and, and do this sacrament together. If you don't have that, just raise your hand and we can get those sacraments materials to you. If you're ready for that, we'll first take out the cracker, the wafer on top, symbolizing the body of Christ. We do this every week because we desire to remember what Jesus Christ did for us. This sacrifice of his broken body for us. And he tells us to do this until his return. And so the church has done this for over 2,000 years, remembering the promises of Jesus Christ and his reconciliation of God the Father to his people. Let's take this together. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ. The life that was through him and how he gave life to us eternal. Let's take this together. Lord Jesus, your sacrifice, this eternal plan to restore us in relationship to you. We ask, Lord, for forgiveness in thinking that we're so wise and that we know the difference between good and evil. May we develop a love for your word and a desire to seek your spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.